we've been studying the book of Exodus for several weeks now as a church, and uh, we've been looking specifically at the life of Moses. So we're actually going to go past Exodus at the end of the series, but just to kind of continue with that life. But that's sort of what we've been focused in on. And this week we're looking at Exodus chapters 33 and 32, 32 and 33. And, and specifically, we're looking at ancient Israel Moses that are encamped in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, uh, that area between modern-day Egypt and modern-day Israel and Palestine. And uh, really, in fact, since about chapter 19 of Exodus, the Israelites have been at the foot of Mount Sinai, and, and Moses has kind of going back and forth, up and down Mount Sinai. He's been climbing the side of the, the, cliff, the, the mountain over and over again, nine times total. In this, uh, in this season or this series of chapters. Um, at the beginning of chapter 32, Moses has been gone for such a long stretch, the longest yet, 40 days and 40 nights, uh, from the end of Exodus chapter 24 all the way through chapter 31. And as we just read, in Moses' long absence, God's people went from uncertain to anxious, then from irritated to frustrated, and finally, in a fit of despair, they made a God-shaped solution, an idol. And so, before we look any closer to the scene, I wanted to pray uh, for our time together and God's word to us this morning. So let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to look at your word, uh, for the opportunity uh, to see what you're up to in your word, um, to know you better, to know ourselves better. But Lord, you've got to meet us. <laughs> you've got to meet us through your word by your spirit. Uh, we're thirsty. Uh, we're hungry. We're longing, whether we know it or not, for your presence. And I pray that we would know your presence, that would feel your fullness that you would be high and lifted up, that you, Jesus, would be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. And Lord, would you help us to leave this room as different people who have met you and as when we've beheld your beauty, that we've become more like you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. I want to say from the get-go uh, that this is a hard passage for us in the 21st century Charlotte to grasp. Uh, it's, it's the emotional sense of this scene is difficult. Uh, what's going on here looks something like this to us. It looks like a group of peer people kind of experimenting with adult ed sculpture in some sort of wilderness area, Marfa, Texas, for instance, and then a massive overreaction from God, right? The Lord getting in a huff, he's storming off, and Moses falling after him with a stream of compliments and artful compromises until God himself gathers his composure and comes back again. But that's like a small child's version of a family argument. There's some limited truth to that, but it lacks a lot of knowledge of what's really going on and why. Maybe it's best to get at Exodus 32 through 33 uh, by putting it, the scene in a, in a somewhat familiar setting. 
Last week, Mark described the the Ten Commandments in Exodus uh, chapter 20 like a wedding vow, like a series of wedding vows, because God intends to marry his people to be in permanent, affectionate relationship, a relationship that the Bible calls a covenant, and we see this most similarly in also what the Bible calls marriage, which is a covenant as well. And actually, we saw this a little bit in the membership vows that people took. You notice they said, I do, over and over and over again. In Exodus chapter 24, the people of God even take these 10 vows and more to heart, and they speak out loud back to God, and they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And you can think of Exodus 24 as something like a marriage moment, a spiritual wedding between ancient Israel and God, minus the white dress and the rented tuxedos and the cute flower girl, but plus burnt and peace sacrifices and bowls of blood being tossed on the, idol, on the altar. That's really what we've got going on in that scene. And then Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6 happen. And I want you to imagine a bride and groom still on their honeymoon. Picture an all-inclusive resort. You know, palm tree, palm tree beaches, a swim-up bar, all-you-can-eat seafood buffet, friendly wait staff and floral prints, I mean, it's like the resort in the TV show White Lotus, season one, okay? It's kind of picture that. Anyway, one day the groom tells the bride he's got to leave the grass-roofed honeymoon suite for a bit to take an important phone call. It's with the builder, they're going to go over the final blueprints, the, the details to submit to the contractors to break ground for their new forever home that they're going to live in together. But just day, just, you know, But just days old groom, he's taking this phone call, he's walking out, and the newly minted blushing bride uh, is waiting. It takes a long time, a very long time. And so she goes from nervous that her husband got lost somehow in the resort to angry, convinced he's not coming back soon, to then convinced that he's not coming back ever. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he's given up on me. Did he hit the eject button on this marriage? And so when the groom finally does come back, having spent roughly seven Old Testament chapters discussing the loving details of their new home, which they're going to call the tabernacle, when he does come back, he notices the tiki torches are no longer lit. And the honeymoon hut's door is slightly open. And when the groom gently, adoringly pushes the door open and walks into the honeymoon suite, he looks and sees the king-sized bed. And what does he see? He sees his wife on their honeymoon, wrapped in the arms and legs of someone else, kissing the lips of another man, someone who looks like the groom, but not really. He's a cheap imitation. Same hair color, maybe. Uh, maybe similar build, but not really looking like him that much at all. And what's more, the groom sees a stack of resort bills slid under the door for all kind of romantic expenses that he didn't participate in. So in a relatively short span of time, the bride has, has spent the entire joint bank account and even pawned her gold-ringed wedding jewelry to pay for it, for this 2.0 counterfeit husband. And so would the groom do right to be angry 
at his wife in this moment? Yes, absolutely. To the degree that he loves her is the degree to which he's upset, not just upset with her, but upset for her. And hopefully you're doing the math of my analogy here. Are we kind of tracking with my analogy? God, uh, the groom is God. The bride is God's people in Exodus 32, Israel. And the adultery is what Israel did with the golden calf. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. And so we're getting to a more mature understanding of what is actually happening emotionally in Exodus chapters 32 and 33. Exodus 32 is this deep betrayal. A prized and promised relationship is cheated of life. And perhaps you can think of a severed friendship or family tie, or it's the groom, not the bride, at fault in your experience. Whatever it looks like, whatever it takes for you to feel this truth, that this idolatry is not just about breaking a rule, it's about breaking God's heart. And if the beginning of Exodus 32 is about betrayal, the rest of Exodus 32 and on into Exodus 33 is about the remedy. What does it take to keep this fractured, God-to-human relationship from falling apart? How can, how can it be held together? Who does what? Can the cracks be healed? Can the trust be sealed back up? And so Exodus 32 through 33 is showing us with honesty what kind of relationship we are also in with God. And a sentence, relating to God takes self-examination and Jesus mediating lots of conversations. And that's sort of what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to examine what an honest and passionate relationship with God looks like by walking through four gospel reminders in the storyline of Exodus 32 and 33. So first, there's an outline in your bulletin for this and also probably projected behind me. But first, we're going to look at Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. They show us the truth about sin. It happens inside me too. Second, we're going to look at verses 7 through 14 of Exodus 32. And they give us the first conversation that needs Jesus. Glory, not me, but you. Third, we're going to look at Exodus 32, verses 30 through 35. They show us the second conversation needing Jesus. Holiness, I can't live with you. Fourth and finally, we're going to look at Exodus 33, those verses 1 through 6 and 15 through 17, and they give us a third Jesus conversation. Presence, I can't live without you. And so that's our outline that we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to start with the start in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to look at how sin happens inside of me too. So if you look there with me, you'll see these first verses in Exodus 32 are in the Bible to convince us of two things. First, the Israelites' sin is offensive. And then their sin is oh so relatable. It's offensive and it's relatable. I've spent a lot of time already trying to picture this scene in such a way that you would buy into, that I would buy into the fact that this is offensive. That what happens here is this moment of spiritual, it's a spiritual, excuse me, adultery, not idolatry. It's spiritual adultery that is idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai. And I've kind of set it in a 21st century honeymoon suite to show you that. And so I'd like to spend the rest of this first point discussing how it's relatable to us. How we don't just witness betrayal 
in our splintered relationships, that we participate in that splintering sometimes, right? I have, to, I have not kept my word. I have broken promises, knowingly and unknowingly. Our hearts and minds are often weighing better options. We chase counterfeit intimacy all the time. Friends who won't disagree with us, family favorites, internet-only romance and sexuality, whatever costs me the least. And no matter how you would religiously self-identify this morning, you and I are committed, are half committed to this dance, especially with God. We're constantly doing this sort of hokey pokey. We're all in, and then we're definitely on the outs. Most of all with God. And I kind of asked someone asked, why is that? How is it that we, like the Israelites, so easily give up on God coming through for us? And our answer comes in the story told in these verses, especially one through six. It's so easy to read this story, right? And to think, how could this happen? We've been reading Exodus. He's done so much for Israel. And it's so uh, hard for us to think, how could they just not wait a little longer? After all, we have the benefit of hindsight. We're thinking this is going to be 40, this is 40 days long, and then on day 40, they just have a little bit left, but they didn't know that at all. They didn't know that they were on day 40 of 40. And, how, and so how could they know that? And so to kind of get into this, I want to get inside their heads and hearts a bit. And so I want you to imagine a young Israelite man or woman who keeps a diary of their 40 days in the wilderness with me. Think about like um, some version of Anne Frank. So here, here we go. Day one. Dear diary, what a day. Our leader Moses just left, and it was quite the scene. After we took our vows to God, um, Moses turned, he walked up the side of Mount Sinai and into the glory cloud of God. And I'll be honest, no way I would do that. All that darkness and thunder and devouring fire, thanks, but no thanks. But that's our Moses. He'll take care of us. That's day one. Day three, dear diary, Moses is still gone, but I'm still excited and honestly a little bit scared. Wilderness noises are scary. I'm not used to this. I'm used to the bustling city traffic of Egypt, the gurgling Nile River. But I do wonder what Moses is talking about with God and what kind of present maybe he'll bring back from the mountain. Day 24, dear diary, still no Moses. We're losing hope down here. Is he dead? Did he give up on us? Has God given up on us? Has he found another people? People are starting to grumble Day 37, where is he? We've been abandoned. Day 39, exciting news. People have gathered themselves together. They've come to Aaron. They've said we need gods, new gods. And Aaron has agreed he's made a golden calf. And he said there's going to be a party tomorrow. And I, for one, can't wait to let loose and celebrate good times. Come on now. Finally, a God I can see, and he even shines like gold. Finally, no more emptiness or waiting around. All I can see is upside without any downside. So exciting. And then, of course, day 40, Moses and God come back to the Israelite camp to discover the people are shammered mid-morning on ancient Middle Eastern mimosas and Bloody Marys, their naked country line dancing around a small metal statue of a cow. That's the scene in our own terms. But let's not lose the general application, these specific details, the weeds, so to speak. 
These people of God felt absolutely and painfully abandoned. And that's why I wanted to set you in that diary. They have felt abandoned in the midst of a barren wilderness. And so they improvised a self-sufficient solution. We can relate. Something or someone to take away the anxious fears. Something or someone to calm our growing frustrations. Something or someone to meet our need for control and connection, for security and for significance, especially in those desperate situations. It could be an all-out replacement for God or a heavily Photoshopped version of God. You know, a God who's missing all of those parts of him that we find confusing or embarrassing. And so we're invited to think about our lives in this passage and to ask, what do you do? What do I do when things get desperate? Where do you run when you feel abandoned? Where do you run when you feel abandoned? That place or person, that thing or experience, that knockoff version of God is our golden calf. But thankfully the story doesn't end there with our sin, the story continues, and this is the next three points we're going to explore, what Eugene Peterson calls the gospel, the good news of God's compassion, of passionate mercy and Moses's compassionate prayer, the good news of God's passionate mercy and Moses's compassionate prayer. And we're gonna look at the three conversations that that is. And it's worth spending some time with each of these, and I'm gonna be brief, more brief than that first point. Exodus 32, verses 7 through 14, our second main point, God's mercy and our prayers point to a glory that says, not me, but you. So if you look there, after God alerts Moses to what's going on at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses sees it for himself, God tells Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may... Make a great nation of you, Moses. So God is essentially proposing another version of the flood here, right? But instead of taking out the entire world, uh, he's only taking out ancient Israel. And instead of starting over with Noah and his sons, he's going to start all over with just Moses. A, Mo- a humanity 3.0 from Moses. But notice that Moses' response here, we might kind of expect something a little different. Maybe Moses takes the bait. Maybe we kind of think he's going to say, yeah, I am really that great. Thank you, God. Let's start over. <laughs> or maybe God gives, he gives God some sort of false modesty. That's kind of you, God, really, but, you know, I'm not worth all of that, just maybe some of it. But really what happens instead is Moses prays, not me, but you. Not me, but you. And Moses pleads for the glory of God's name. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountain and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning rage and relent from the disaster against your people, Exodus 32, 12. And Moses pleads for, God's, uh, for God to keep his glorious promises. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, 
And he and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Exodus 32, 13. And, the words of verse, and then, in the words of verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. That's amazing. Just pause there for a moment. He stopped by Moses' prayers. So what do we learn about this, about prayer, about conversing with God? I want to say two things. First, prayer is effective. Prayer is effective. In the Bible, prayer is not simply, it actually just means simply keeping company with God. It's just talking to God and even listening to God out loud and in our minds and hearts. But notice that talking and listening actually does something. God uses our prayers to influence what he chooses to do. This is how the theologian Tim Chester puts it. How does our prayer interact with God's sovereignty, the sovereign control of everything? God intends our prayers to be the means by which he changes the world. He decides to use our prayer to change his decisions. God is sovereign. He is the I am who I am. It was always God's intention to do this very thing but he chose to do it through the courageous intervention of Moses. God usually uses means or instruments to cause change. Just like God uses doctors and medicine so often to heal people, God uses our prayers to do what's right here on earth. And this leads us to the second takeaway about prayer. Prayer is a surrender to God. It's a surrender to God. In prayer, we're submitting our will to God's will, especially when life is difficult. But Exodus 32, 13 shows us that this surrender, this submission looks different than we think. Often this posture of surrender looks and feels like an impossible hope. But to hope grounded in what God has promised will happen. And so like Moses, we don't know We don't know how Israel would survive. Noah doesn't understand how Israel is going to survive. But he also at the same time knows that God has promised to multiply this nation as many as the stars in the sky. He's holding those tensions. And so in Jesus, we can ask for what God has promised, his peace, his rescue, and seemingly impossible situations. We can hold that tension. How? Why? Because nothing is too hard for God. Case in point, God became a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died and was resurrected from the dead, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Father God. And so Jesus was God's means, his instrument to accomplish God's purpose, his rescue, his peace, when both seemed impossible. And so by prayer and through the gospel story, Jesus can and will come into the hardest situations of our lives, our families, our work, our illnesses, even death itself. And there, there Jesus gives peace and mercy in the most surprising ways. Not always in our ways, by our will, 
But Jesus is there at work, there in the spaces that feel too hard to bear alone. And this need for Jesus to be the center of our hopes and prayers leads to the third main point, the second God conversation. God's holiness makes it so that I can't live with him, at least without someone to come between us. Chapter 32, verses 30 through 35, begin with a growing realization of how serious our sin problem is. Moses now knows God will not destroy all of Israel except him. But he also recognizes that cheating on God with a golden calf requires some serious relationship repair. How can God be open and intimate and at one with these people when they have chosen to be at one with a non-thinking, non-feeling, gold-leaf statue of a male cow? And God is rightly angry at this betrayal. It's a big deal. And Moses at least grasps the bigness of the deal. And so I guess the question for us, a question for us, is do you and I grasp how big a deal our sin is to God? Do we grasp that? How big our sin, how big a deal our sin is to God? Do we see how our failures to love, how our self-promotion and our self-righteousness, how those get in the way of our relationships with other human beings, let alone with God? If we picture God shrugging about our sin, then maybe we have made God into a golden calf instead of a holy God, the Lord of lords of everything that is and was and will be. The saying's true, right? The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. You see, it's a gift to see our sin. Like, it's a gift to... (laughs) I'm weirdly encouraged when I see how I've sinned a great sin. Because it gives me reason for all the things that we're doing today, (laughs) for all the things that we're doing on a Sunday, to go and to meet and and to want to be, to draw near to God, to run to the only one who can make me at one with God, and even with others in my relationships. So in verses 31 through 35, we see the only one who can make atonement, at one mint for us in our relationships. And we see it's not Moses, it's Jesus. Verse 32, Moses offers himself as a substitute for the people who have wronged God. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from the book that you have written. Moses is saying, look, if your holiness God can't live with these people forever, take the spiritual white out and remove me from your loving presence, me for them. But verses 32 through 35 tell us that God was not having any of it. Not because God is against someone standing in the breach, against someone substituting himself for other people, but because Moses was the wrong person to do it. Right? He's not holy enough. He had and he will sin against God again and again. And Moses is not big enough. His one life could not stand in for more than one person. And only Jesus, who lived a human life without sin, who's very God of very God, God and man at the same time, only this God-man could actually say on the cross, blot me out of the book of life so that anyone who follows me can have their name there, so that you, God, can live with them. 
And so I also have to ask, do you and I grasp how big a deal Jesus is to us? How big a deal Jesus is to us? He's life itself. He's the repairer of our relationships. His relationships with God and relationships with other people. But chapter 32 of Exodus happens before Jesus comes and dies for us. And so Moses and Israel are still very much feeling the incredible weight of God's holiness. I can't live with you, God, is what they're saying. But then God, in Exodus chapter 33, proposes a solution, a plan. Moses and all God's people are going to feel an incredible counterweight in that plan. They're going to feel, I can't live without you, God. And that's our fourth and final point this morning for those still managing to keep score with the the sermon. Here's how God puts it. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way for your stiff-necked people, Exodus 33.3. In other words, God is saying, go on without me. I can't live with you, but I can keep my promise to you and give you this land flowing with milk and honey. In our terms, a spouse, 2.5 kids, a starter home, and a rewarding career. What a temptation. All of God's benefits without his demands all God's goodies without the whole relationship that asks a lot of me, that gets in my way for doing life on my terms. And if we're honest, it might surprise us to see the reaction of the people of Israel and Moses here. Because what we want, that's what we want. We want friends with only benefits. We want sexual and romantic intimacy without cost. We want God without all that obedience. That's what I want most of the time. And so there's a part of us that's surprised by Israel's reaction. When the people heard the disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And maybe especially taken aback by Moses' comment to God later in the passage that's shocking to us. And he, Moses, said to him, God, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. How can he say that? Why would he say that? Because the people and Moses realize they can't live without God. They need his presence. They're stuck in a 1990s U2 pop song, right? See the stone set in your eyes. See the thorn twist in your side. I'll wait for you. Sled of hand and twist of fate, on a bed of nails she makes me wait, and I wait without you. Through the storm we reach the shore, you gave it all, but I want more, and I'm waiting for you, with or without you. My hands are tied, my body bruised, she got me with nothing to win and nothing left to lose, and you give yourself away, and you give yourself away. I can't live with or without you. I can't live with or without you. In his memoir about this, writing this song, Bono, in his book Surrender, says that this song is about a covenant. It's about a marriage to his wife, Allie, and also to his God. That God and his wife were all that he needed, but fortunately slash unfortunately, not at all the same time. 
they gave him everything he needed, but not at the same time. They would have to wait on each other. And so that's what our relationship with God sometimes feels like, doesn't it? We sing with Bono and Moses and the people of Israel, I can't live with or without you, God. But that spiritual song, that prayer that builds waiting and waiting for the chorus, gets a chorus in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. For you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. It's shockingly simple. God once again uses prayer. God will not destroy the entire nation of Israel. And what's more, he will also personally stay with them. They and Moses will have what they want the very most, God's presence. And what Moses and Israel experienced in a pillar of smoke and fire and sometimes a storm cloud on the top of a mountain, we get in the form of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus physically left the earth and ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty so that he might spiritually, he might send his spiritual presence. The infinite God dwells in our finite hearts and we dwell in this Jesus by his Holy Spirit so that God can say to us with our shed full of golden calves, can say to us even mid-infidelity, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's his answer to us when we feel abandoned. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so really, in our time, this is a challenging passage. It's a challenging way to talk about it. And I really want you to feel that push of Exodus 32 through 33. It is push on our relationship with God. Whether we're married to God by faith or not in this room, this story shakes up how we relate to God. First, by pressing into who we think we are, and then by pressing into who we feel God is. But if that's unsettling, I want you to also rest in this confidence. What is falling away in these difficult passages are not the foundation stones of faith but merely the metal scaffolding that we no longer need. The way that we as small children learned or think about glory and holiness and our only true hope. So if, my dear, there sometimes seem to be old bridges breaking between you and me, never fear, we may let the scaffolds fall confident that we have built our wall. So if, my dear, there sometimes seem to be old bridges breaking between you and me, never fear, we may let the scaffolds fall, confident we have built our wall. This is what the Lord our God says to you, his blushing bride, this morning in his words. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this passage. Thank you for the opportunity to meditate on it, to try to believe it more and more. And Father, I just ask that you would be kind and would be gracious to us 
that you would push us where we don't want to go if that's where we need to go, or you would comfort us from a place that feels on the edge of everything. And I ask that you would take care for us and be kind and gracious. And would you remind us of your promises? In your name, Jesus.